Hi and welcome to POMCAST, the podcast brought to you by Pom Pom Quarterly Magazine. This episode is sponsored by Blacker Yarns. Blacker Yarns produce a diverse range of breed-specific knitting and crochet yarn. With everything from Shetland and Blueface Leicester through to Wensleydale, Gotland and Manx, you'll be sure to find an unexpected treat. If you're thinking of embarking upon a breed-specific adventure, then head over to www.blackeryarns.co.uk. All Blacker's wares are spun and dyed on their mill in Cornwall, using 100% British fibre and sustainable production methods. There are exciting things afoot at Blacker HQ this month. Their St Kilda Laceweight yarn, made from the fibre of two of the oldest and rarest British sheep breeds, Soy and Borore, has been dipped in a rainbow of colour. Blacker have teamed up with the Knitting Goddess to produce 10 hand-dyed shades. Hand-dyed yarns possess a great depth and intensity, which is particularly striking over their subtly textured St Kilda yarn. The collaboration came about from a desire to recognise the importance of this country's rich textile heritage and elevate the fibre from such rare and beautiful sheep. Welcome to POMCAST. This is the podcast brought to you by Pom Pom Quarterly Magazine. I'm Sophie Scott and next to me, uh, oh she's here, it's Lydia Glow. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Welcome back, all you lovely POMCATs and listeners and uh, welcome to the podcast if you've never listened before. Yes, well done for finding us. <laughs> on the internet. On the internet or wait, we are in many locations on the internet, yes. are we not? So iTunes, standard, I mean everyone's dipped their toe in that pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, SoundCloud, Yep, that's different, where we started. Different time for precipitation. Rather than dipping your toe in the water of iTunes, <laughs> you've got the cloud of sound. Yes. And sewing them all together <laughs> is Stitcher, uh, which is another podcast service which we're now available on. So also available on Stitcher. Yeah, that's fun. It's, uh, the, they're colloquially known as podcatchers, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a few of you who asked us um, about whether or not we'd be available on Stitcher. And now we are. We can say yes. Yes, we are. Thank you to Sophie Scott, who did all the legwork on that. Thank you, Sophie Scott. Hey, my new job. I'm doing stuff already, guys. Doing so much stuff. (laughs) So, this podcast, you can expect the usual fun things. Uh, We have tell and tell. Tell each other and you guys what we've been knitting. News and reviews. Clues in the title there. Mm -hmm. Got an interview with Caitlin French. What? Oh, boy, she's a hoot. She certainly is. So, that's very exciting. Um, We have what would Juju do? Finally, we're actually doing this segment. She's back, guys. She She flew back, especially from Canada. Well, we flew her back. Yeah. (laughs) And we've got top three. Yeah, that's how we always finish up, by listing random items. You guys know what it's like. You like the wolves, you like Pom Pom Magazine. Let's put them in an audio format. All right, let's get down to the news, because oh boy, is stuff coming up. Uh, So, as we did last year, we are going to do a preview of our upcoming winter issue. That's issue 19 at... Rhinebeck Sheep and Wool Festival. Just a little old festival. Don't know if you've heard of it. (laughs) So that's in uh, mid-October in Rhinebeck. Unsurprisingly. What what can the people expect? The people can expect, uh, well, Amy and I will be there. Mm -hmm. We'll be the main... No, no. (laughs) And we will be there with many, many uh, pom-pom designer types who will be signing copies of pom-pom. Pretty cool. So there'll be lots more details about that on the blog. Um... So I suggest, highly uh, recommend that you go and read more about it there. But we're really, really excited. I'm specifically excited because I've never been to Rhinebeck before. Neither has Amy, as it happens. And we hear that it's very beautiful as well as very woolly and fun. 
Well, that's all all you can want, really, for most things yeah. in the world. Yeah, pretty much. Closer to home, fun and woolly things that are happening, um, is a movie premiere. Oh, my what? word. So the film is called Yarn. <laughs> and, very Googleable. Yeah, very Googleable. <laughs> Um, and it's going to be on the 9th of October at Hackney Picture House. So yes, very near to the PPHQ, which is nice. Sorry, so that's the pre- that's the London premiere. That's the London premiere. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So that's Hackney Picture House, just down the road. And Sophie and I will be hosting a Q and A after the screening. That's pretty cool. I'm very excited about pretty that. Pretty good. Yeah. With uh, the writer and executive producer Krishan Aurora and the producer Heather Millard. So we are very excited, first of all, to meet them, because it will be our first time meeting them in person, mm-hmm. and to see the film properly, and there will be many other related events, all at Hackney Picture House. Yeah, because after the show, there's the after party. <laughs> so there's a party, there's a pop-up market. Um, oh yeah, the best thing about the filming, the, the screening even, is it's knit-friendly, because it's going to be low-level lighting. Exactly, so you'll be able to, um, if you are London-based and you are coming along, you'll be able to bring along your projects... And uh, if you do, you know, we, we trust you're all, uh, you know, able to knit in cinemas anyway. Mm-hmm. But me and Sophie have discussed this before. And sometimes it's dark and you get confused and drop things or you want to check if you've made a mistake. Hey, guys, don't worry about it. Knit friendly. It'll be knit friendly. There'll be enough light for knitting and watching. That's pretty cool. So if you're one side of the pond, Rhinebeck, other side of the pond, come down to London, get your tickets. Come see a little film. We're catering to everyone. Well done, us. We'll we'll start getting more and more into different corners of the globe. Yeah, because uh, we are going to be in Oslo in November um, at uh, Strickfest, Oslo Strickfest, which is the first weekend of November. Sophie and I will be there. We'll tell you more about this next next podcast, I guess. But... Yeah, so we're bringing uh, bringing the podcast show. It's like we're going on tour. It's pretty exciting. I'm pretty. It's pretty. Pretty cool, it's man. Pretty I mean, great. It's pretty cool. I haven't been to Norway before. Have you been there before? I have been to Norway briefly uh, in my youth. Yes, but uh, well, well it'll be my first. <laughs> be my first trip, and very very excited. And we will be doing a live podcast event, but mm-hmm. more on that later. More on that later. I mean, you guys will be overwhelmed with the amount of news, especially because over the summer we've been like. Yeah, stuff's kind of happening soon. We should have told you to get little notebooks out before we started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what the folks can Diaries. do? Mm-hmm. If they they ever miss anything or they want to read more, they want to get the link to Rhinebeck or they want to see how to buy the tickets for the yarn movie. There's a place for that. There's a place. There's a time and a place. <laughs> and uh, that's if you head to the Pom Pom website, pompommag.com, and go to the podcast section. And we have all the notes and sometimes silly photos. So that's good. Also, within the, wow, this news, we're really cranking out this news this uh, episode. We've shot the winter issue. We certainly have. Well, I mean, since we will be releasing it at Rhinebeck, we... Uh, You'll be glad to know. It's you'll be glad to know that we're, we're, you know, uh, ticking along there, just uh, putting it together. Yep, we shot the winter issue a few weeks ago uh, in a very beautiful studio location in North London, which was carefully chosen to be very near my house. And <laughs> quite, quite conveniently for me. <laughs> and also happened to be a very lovely location. And we're very excited um, for you guys to see the fruits of our labour. Winter issue, coming soon. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear more about it on this podcast. Because, um, yeah, the news, it's autumn now. It's back to school. Back to school. Back to school, loads of news. Loads of news. And we like to tell you what we've been up to. So on a knit-to-know basis, Lydia... I have been making my Rockane jumper, so that's the um, kind of Gansey-inspired jumper, which was from the autumn issue. I want to call it Roquette. 
Raclette. Raclette. <laughs> the cheese issue from Pompom. Baccarat, no what? Um, it's <laughs> and I'm knit- I'm making it in uh, Viola's Morsberg DK in good. the colour mustard seed. Um, so I think I'm maybe about a third of the way into That's that. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, been knitting it whilst watching things, you know, standard kind of Netflix activities. Yes. Pen pending. Knit. Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> um, I also made another Queensland Beach headband from uh, Fiona Alice's book Take Heart, which will be a gift for somebody who doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. Secrets! <laughs> You're very singy today. Oh, actually, I'm in a good mood. Secrets! Uh, so that's what I'm making in the knitting world. Yeah? Yes. That sounds good. How about you? What am I making? Um, I'm also making something which is a secret which I can talk to people about because they don't, there's no way they listen to this podcast. I'm going to a wedding and at the very last minute, very, very last minute, I've decided I'll knit them a Take Heart hat each because that's lovely. They will have warm heads and therefore be able to make good Aww. marital decisions and obviously the design by Fiona Alice has the heart cable. Mm. So Excellent. I now have what, four days to do this? I could do two hats in four days. I believe in you. Well, I'll keep you posted for next time. <laughs> Every now and again, I'm like, hmm. But so far, it's good. That's how much I've done. I'm going to point it to Lydia. That is good. I believe in you. It's a couple of inches. <laughs> it's okay. Hats are quick. Hats are quick, guys. So that's fun. And uh, I haven't done any speed knitting for a while. So I thought, I've been quite chilled recently. I just need to give a little bit of pressure to myself. Deadlines. <laughs> Deadlines, yeah. So that's been, that's been my knit life. Uh, and otherwise, knit to know. I went to Hindu for the first time, which is kind of linked to that going to a wedding thing. Ah, yes. And uh, there was Willie Straws. So <laughs> that stereotype tick. <laughs> it was fun. Good. Yeah. Nice little weekend away. It was. And we played also Pin the Junk on the Hunk. We played Pin the Tail on the Donkey. I don't need to explain anymore. We'll get a bit blue over here. I know. It's this PG 13 podcast. <laughs> on to our reviews that's right plural reviews two reviews reviews are there too here's number one edward's crochet imaginarium by kerry lord okay if this involves crochet i can tell from the title it also involves an imaginarium so this is available from the 8th of september through pavilion books there's a factoid for you and kerry lord you might know uh, as the founder of toft toft wool and this book is uh, very unique in the fact it gives you not just a set amount of patterns, but the building blocks, the technical tuition, mm-hmm. and the inspiration for some weird and wonderful creatures, uh, such as the Imaginarium. Certainly does. I mean, I can see the cover right now, and there are many fun crocheted creatures yes. gracing its cover. So, Lydia, have mm-hmm. you ever wondered what the creatures of the bottom of your garden might look like? Or visualise the dishevelled hairstyle of a sock monster who lives in your washing machine? Every morning? Well, here's a million different monsters that you can make. <laughs> so the way the book works, it's like a, a mix and match thing to make mm-hmm. your own creative monster. And it's kind of unique because it's like a little flip book. So the book, the pages in the book are split into three. Mm-hmm. Like thirds. Thirds, exactly. Mm-hmm. Three thirds. <laughs> and you have your heads... You have your arms, mm-hmm. and you have your legs, and then you can sort of 
separate the uh, the bits of the flip book. So I want this arm, so I want these legs with that, and I want this head, and you can mix and match, almost like an infinite, at least over a million, I'd say. Easy. <laughs> like three million, maybe? Um, two, two, Zillion. Two, two, three, five million, and one. Got it. Wow. Monsters. That's a lot of monsters. That's a lot of monsters, yeah. So Edward, within the Edward's Crochet Imaginarium, is mm -hmm. uh, her son. Mm -hmm. And one of the nice things that she Carrie writes about in the book that I really liked is she says, also for adults, obviously, to be involved in the making, but she wants it to, like, uh, engage with children, you know, so they'd be like, right. oh, mum, I think this head's the best one, or, oh, no, we definitely need to put these feet on the monster. Well, that's fun, so it's like a little collaboration with the kids. Yeah. And then uh, another thing I liked about this, uh, as well as the process, you can get involved with choosing which bits you want to join in. There's also um, instructions uh, for the levels of difficulty. So mm -hmm. if you have a different head, you're like, this is an easy head, this is level one head. And the way they've also included how to tell is indicated which colour of wood the, uh, the picture ah. is on. So darker the wood, the more hardcore the project. <laughs> but don't let that put you off because at the back they have all the technical instructions. If you are a beginner or you, you know, maybe there's a few little skills that you don't have yet that you need to add to your crochet skill bag. <laughs> That's a thing, right? Um, but they have very clear photos in the book uh, for you and they've thought of all sorts of things that you would need to know about making monsters. Things that I didn't even know that you needed to know. Like what? Like stuffing, mm -hmm. sewing, counting, sizing... Uh, colour palettes even oh yeah mm. uh, and tips on designing and the monsters can also have tails which well, I think is worth mentioning that's very essential I think one of the things they say in the book is like a lot of these monsters have enough attitude without a tail but we think it's important to have included there's like six styles of tail you can choose clues from yeah choose that's from. good yeah that's that's some good tail uh, potential <laughs> potential tail potential mm. mm, no uh, also, I like within, uh, you can have obviously a basic monster, but they give all the variants you can do, and also a lot of things about how to include colours, like a quite cool like instructions for gradient Ooh. monster, and like stripes, and like doing like a sort of shifted stitch pattern, like different pots of colour. Hey. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the monster possibilities are endless. True. Who knew? Who knew there are? were so many monsters waiting to be made? So it's Edward's Crochet Imaginarium by Kerry Lord. We think this book's good fun, good for crochet, it's good for um, 3D uh, making of things, and it's good for monsters. I mean, who doesn't need all those things, Lydia? Well, I know that I do need them. There we go. We've got that <laughs> in this book. So thanks, Toph, for sending that to us. And so our second review, that's right, because it was reviews. Reviews part no. two. Review two uh, is a lovely yarn from Blacker Yarns called St Kilda. Yes. Uh, and it's a limited edition yarn. Oh boy, is it. Not only is it made from the Boray and Soy sheep who live in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, uh, this being the oldest and rarest British sheep breed, did you know, Lydia? What? So it's only so much uh, fleece from this flocks each year. Wow. So it's pretty limited already. Mm -hmm. But now, Black have also done a lovely collaboration with the Knitting Goddess mm -hmm. to do a beautiful hand-dyed colour palette for Lovely, and we have a shade card here, and it's a glorious rainbow. Oh, it's a kaleidoscope. We've got ten shades, and two of them, uh, making twelve, mm -hmm. I can do maths, uh, <laughs> of an undyed, beautiful grey sheep colour, as uh, one would know it as. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this uh, particular blend makes a yarn that is delicate, yet with a crisp texture. 
And bounce. Yeah, bouncy. So if you've used like a Shetland yarn before, I think that's what I'd liken it to. Mm -hmm. It has that nice, the crunch of... Yeah, uh, crispy and bouncy. Yeah, uh, but delicate because, of course, it is a lace. So thank you to Blacker for sponsoring this podcast. Mm -hmm. And also, little cheeky bonus for you guys... We have a skein to give away. We certainly do. Lucky you guys. I mean, what's better than a podcast? There's a podcast with a little competition with it. With some yarn. With some yarn. Woo! So we have a little giveaway. Most podcasts. Mm -hmm. Getting every podcast now. Pretty this much. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're listening uh, fairly soon, within the week of this podcast being released... So now <laughs> we have more information on the blog of how to enter and Blacker have given us a skein, a lovely 50 gram skein of the St Kilda in what colour? It's like a aqua turquoise. It's gorgeous. It's a very pleasing, yeah, kind of turquoisey blue. Called Levenish. Yeah, mm. it's gorgeous. So we uh, recommend you take a look at the yarn. Uh, we will have links, as we always do, on our show notes. But also, why not enter the competition? Why not? Why not be in the chance, uh, in for a chance of winning some yarn? Could do worse. Could do worse. So thanks again, Blacker. So for this episode, we have an interview with Caitlin French. Uh, Sophie spoke to her via Skype, so um, although the sound quality is, it's all right. It does at times sound like she's in a tunnel. We don't believe that she was in a tunnel. Pretty sure she was in her house, but uh, just to warn you about that. And Caitlin French is, of course, the totally rad designer and dyer. Her designs have been in uh, Pom Pom's issue in issue five. And and we had her mordant recipe, this is more notable, her mordant recipe uh, in our most recent issue, issue 18, because Caitlin is a pretty accomplished natural dyer, I think it's fair to say. So we spoke to her across the sea. And just as a little reminder, there are a few swears in this section of the podcast. A couple of baby swears. Yeah, no biggies, but just if there's anyone around who you would rather didn't hear swears, or if you would rather not hear swears, just a little heads up. Welcome to today's interview. We're joined by Caitlin French, who is a knitwear designer, a natural dyer, and a fantastic fibre artist. Hi, Caitlin. Hello. Thank you for having me. And good morning. We're on different time zones. This is always exciting to do uh, that I can say good morning <laughs> to you. <laughs> I'm pretty much on the other side of the world for me right now. I know. It's exciting. Such as the, the, the world of podcasts and the world of knitting. We can come together. Um, we start with our classic question, which of course is, what are your early, earliest memories of knitting and uh, sort of who taught you to knit? Uh, well, for knitting, earliest memory, uh, I tried to learn how to knit from my grandmother when I was about six. Uh, and it lasted about maybe an hour. And then she told me I was terrible at it and that I would never, <laughs> I would never be successful. It's like, oh, thanks, Oma. Cool. Um, <laughs> I promise she wasn't like a hard lady or anything. It was just I was a very uh, rambunctious six-year-old or something, give or take that age. Um, so then I tried it again when I was 19 or 20, and I was driving from my hometown down to Vancouver, where I live now, for a punk rock concert. And one of my friends that was there, she was like, do you want to learn how to knit? It's like, yeah, I, I, I guess so. That sounds good. My grandma told me I was shit at this, but we'll see. Uh and it worked and it kind of stuck and I could knit and purl. Um, I did like a fan and feather scarf and then I just kind of put it down and didn't do it again for, oh God, many years, like 
four or five years, maybe. Um, and then one of my best friends, uh, she was opening a yarn store. She was like, Hey, do you want a job? Do you want to work for me? I'm like, yeah, I can't really knit though. She's like, no, you'll figure it out. It'll be good. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, so then she opened a yarn store and I learned very quickly that I was, uh, in over my head. And so every night I would go home from work and I would do something harder every single night until mm -hmm. I was able to write patterns within a few months. Uh, and that's kind of how it, it went is just getting thrown in the deep end. I like that. That's something that sort of embodies punk rock. I think there's something that you wouldn't expect. You're like, I went to a punk rock concert and learned how to knit. <laughs> You know, that's the embodiment of a rebellion of punk. <laughs> I don't, was, was you actually at, you actually at the concert knitting then? Or? Yeah, I was like doing cool. Fan and Feather. I'm like, oh shit, okay, knit two together, yarn over. Oh my God. And it was very like intense. That's deep end um, as well. If you can knit at a concert, then you can knit anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's not to say that I, I, I didn't already have like a textile background. Okay. Um, when I went to university, I went for a few years to do my, uh, my fine arts degree. And then I took a year off to go to another school that rather than being like a fine arts school, it was more of a craft based school. Mm -hmm. And I went there for their jewelry program, uh, because I wanted to make jewelry. And, uh, in the first seven weeks there, you have to take, uh, two of their courses at the same time. And so I tried to get into ceramics and ceramics was full. Uh, so I decided to go with the textiles because they all look like witches. I was yes. like, well, those are my people. Like, so I can get down with this. Uh, at my first day of jewelry school, I turned on the torch and just got sweaty. I'm like, oh God, I'm so afraid of fire. Uh, so then I was in textiles. <laughs> fire was very scary. Uh, <laughs> so I did a year there and then I went back and I finished my degree with like a very textile heavy influence. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. So I think one of the things I know you best for is your work with natural dyes. And we had your lovely tutorial recently in issue 18 with the Mordens. Yeah, how, thank how, you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We were really pleased to have you as part of it. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> so when did you start exploring this technique and sort of become part of your practice and sort of uh, your textiles and your yarns as well? Well, um, when I went to textile school, um, they taught us how to be dyers there. And Doing all of the technical aspects of dyeing using acid dyes and fiber reactive dyes on plant-based and, and protein fibers, uh, being able to get exact colors, I could do that um, quite easily, figuring out the math and, and nailing a color, but it was the magic of uh, going out into the world and, and actually harvesting and not knowing exactly what color you're going to get. That seemed, I guess, more real to me. Um so that was my first kind of, I guess, foray into natural dyeing was in 2004, um, which is a long time ago now, it seems. Uh, and so then I just kind of noodled around with natural dyeing for, you know, the next six or seven years. But um, it was when I started knitting. That's like when my friend opened the yarn store uh, that that really struck it home for me where I wanted to do it a lot more. Mm -hmm. Uh, and fortunately I live in Vancouver where, uh, there's Mewa, the natural dye supply and, uh, textile foundation is, is located here. So I have incredible access to, to natural dyes. Uh, and actually right now is there last night was this kickoff party for their symposium. So last night I got to go to a lecture of India Flint, uh, and listening to her talk about the eco print bundle method. Yeah. And it yeah, it was mind blowing. She's, she's like my Gandalf of <laughs> natural ties. So she's 
She's very sweet. Um, yeah. So I guess that's kind of how I, I got into it. I was that you sort of already talked a little bit about sort of uh, using sort of what's on your doorstep, but sort of being in nature and being outside that like you can see from sort of your, you know, your Instagram feed and your blog, it's sort of integral to sort of how you work. How do you get that balance then of sort of, you know, being outside, inside with your work and how that sort of informs your practice it's funny to like go through my instagram feed and like think like man it looks like i'm like this like magical creature always out in the forest i mean that that's what Uh, i think this is what this interview is is it like as amazing as it looks you know that's (laughs) (laughs) it's yes and no so half the time like hey i'm i'm gonna go do some wild crafting uh because it's kind of like the last big push for tansy a natural dye that grows here um but i'm gonna be like on the side of the highway in a ditch right, going okay. to well because <laughs> um, Tansy here is considered a noxious weed so going in and wildcrafting it um, yeah it, I don't take it like from forest I, I'll take it from the side of the road where I know that they're going to go through with a mower probably right. in the next couple of weeks and just take it down um, but then in two weeks or so it'll be like a heavy heavy mushroom season here so then I'll be going out into actual forest um and wild crafting dye mushrooms so it there is a balance um I do kind of use my work to uh to get myself out into the forest at least a few times a week uh because I do live in Vancouver and like we're in a rainforest I I can easily get to the middle of nowhere very quickly uh like for example last week I I needed to get like a large amount of charcoal so rather than just you know going down the street to like where there might have been a fire down at the beach or what have you. I drove about an hour away to Squamish and I, I was walking on like actual forest where there had been a camp site. I, I try to kind of work my work into being able to go really far out into the middle of nowhere. So it's a, yeah. it's a good balance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, today I'll definitely be in a ditch. harvesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take photos of it. Maybe we should it's, talk about uh, your, your upcoming book then. Which is oh man! The, the darkness fell. Like, how did that start? Oh, so in the summer of 2014, my my husband and I went to Iceland for almost a few months, like almost two months. Um, and we had gone to Iceland a little bit because it's amazing, and we wanted yeah. to go and and see what it was, what all the hype was about. Um, and also because I wanted to have a kind of like a break from like my regular life. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that time I had been for a few months, like fully 100% menopausal because uh, I had endometriosis and my specialists were preparing me for a hysterectomy. So they put me on this medication that like in 24 hours I was 100% like fully menopausal which I was like oh my god and everything was very hot and right (laughs) emotional and like wild uh so I was like if I'm gonna be this I need to not be in like my regular life I need like a break so we packed our bags and we drove across Canada and then we flew from Montreal to Iceland spent a few months in a very small tent um hitchhiking around and, and adventuring after I got home about like a, a month and a half later is when Darkwoods got released uh, at a big knitting festival that happens here called Knit City. And then the day after Knit City, I got a hysterectomy, which is wild. So now I'm back on the the other side of menopause because they left me with one ovary. Uh, and yeah, it was like this whole like whirlwind of like, I'm releasing a book, about to get like, you know, 
a hysterectomy, which was a pretty intense thing as like a, a 30 year old human. Right. Uh, and I'd just gone on this big epic trip and it was this whole thing. So then when uh, last summer I was talking to my partner, Arlen, I was like, you know, I kind of want to go back to Iceland. He was like, oh, we've already done that. Let's go do another thing. And I'm like, well, you kind of did that. But like, I was, I cried a lot. Yeah. Not like you know, sad cries, but just like, oh my God, there's a puffin and just like crying for two hours. Cause I, like menopause is heavy, man. Uh so we went back again uh, for our 10-year wedding anniversary. Uh, this time we went back with five friends. And when he was like, okay, we're going to go to Iceland. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Um, I was like, you know what? I should, I should design some knitting patterns and we'll shoot them there. It'll be like very dreamy and ethereal. He was like, yeah. I'm like, you know what we should do? I was like, let's not just like take photographs. Let's take them on film. And not just take them all on film, but take them on like medium format film, because that's what I, I shoot with uh, a Bronica. So we did it like the hardest way possible. So we couldn't see any of the shots that we had gotten. We just like hoped to hell that they were going to work. Uh, shot them, came home, developed all the film the day after we got home from Iceland and they all worked, which is pretty like, I'm like, we did well. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Uh, we did do some studio shots of all the work, uh, but that was all shot by my friend Amanda, mm -hmm. but all still on a medium format film. So every shot from the new book is shot on film, which Amazing. feels really, I don't know, man. I don't know if it was like, uh, just that I would, I guess it's just cocky to like shoot everything. <laughs> because you can. Yeah. I was going to say like, what's, what's the choice with that? Like definitely just you know, going out and I'm like, well, if this doesn't work, it would be a very expensive test. So right. <laughs> yeah, but it worked. Um, so I just finished the layout for that. Uh, everything is done except for, I just need to do the finishing touches on the cover and then it goes to print. That's tonight. exciting. Tonight. Which is, wow. So it should be out, uh, for knit city this year. So, uh, October 1st, it'll yep. be ready. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll be watching the space. So is it is it inspired the the pieces the knitwear are inspired by your original trip to Iceland then? Yeah, yeah. It kind of uh, that's where it came up. Where um, so it's all all the yarn that I used for it is from Eastex. The the like the Lopi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They make all of like the the Lopi that you find in anywhere not Iceland. Um, and actually, the the thing that kind of runs throughout all of the. Um, the, the patterns with seed stitch, which is like my jam. Uh, but I feel like making everything that has seed stitch is like taking the really hard long way because, uh, yeah, it just seems like a little bit tougher. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know if that's is the right. That, is that <laughs> like blend in with the using film for everything? Like let's use the yeah. most intense stitch we can, you know, like, you know, yeah, like work heavy. Like, <laughs> That'll be fun. Well, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is kind of in a similar theme of the uh, taking the long road round, is uh, slow clothing movement. Uh, yeah. So you um, make your own clothes. So um, I just want to say, like, why and how that's important for you. For for me, the I guess the best way to describe it is that I want to make the least amount of impact on my land base as possible. Um, and whenever I speak to the clo slow clothing movement and, and the idea of, like, my land where I, where I live. Um, I don't say landscape because landscape kind of notes that like you're looking at something as like a viewer, not as like an active, uh, an active human being in with what, where you are. So when I say land base, it means like, what is my impact on, on the watershed where I am, what animals live where I am, 
Um, how am I uh, affecting the indigenous and invasive species? And if it's indigenous, how, you know, how long has it been there? How does it grow? And if it's invasive, has it uh, come into uh, itself where it is an invasive species, but it's actually something that supports the, the ecology of the land, the land base? Right. Um, so thinking about all of those, and then as a human being living in the city, um, that's, it's tough, man. Cause you're, it's like, okay, what am I eating? What am I like wearing on my body? What am I, how does all of this affect, you know, everybody in my, in my life? And I, I just can't get down with a $5 t-shirt. Like I, I don't often buy clothing. Um, if I do, I try to thrift a lot of clothing, um, or I have, uh, I buy things that are pieces that I can wear for a really long time. Yeah. Um, because the idea that, you know, somebody, somebody had to grow the cotton to make the t-shirt. So a cotton t-shirt takes about 3000 liters of water to grow. Whereas like a linen one would take about eight, eight to 10 liters of water. So 3000 liters of water then it was dyed somewhere. Uh, and typically things that are dyed overseas might not have the same sort of, um, environmental practices that we have. And that's why a lot of dyeing is done overseas so that you can pollute the land base of somebody else because you're not having to deal with that watershed and, and, you know, the environmental impact because the dye industry is one of the, the heaviest pollutants of anything in the world, but it's just not spoken of. And then they will take, you know, whoever, whatever company is making this thing will take the fabric and they'll take it to somebody to sew the thing, to actually assemble the garment. And whoever is assembling the garment isn't being paid properly. Like they're not, you know, making a living. It's, you know, it's essentially the idea of slavery, like that I'm better than somebody else because I can, I can afford to buy this $5 thing that somebody else got paid almost nothing for that's, that's kind of holding yourself in a higher esteem than, a, than another human being. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so, well, and then something, you know, getting shipped over from, from wherever to here, it's on a shipping container going across the ocean. Like that seems like a very excessive way of living your life. So the idea of fast fashion where you just buy a thing and then you, you get rid of it, that makes no sense to me. Like whatever you have, you should be mending and with, you know, with honoring whatever cloth that you're wearing, um, whether you're mending it so that it doesn't look like it was broken or visibly mending it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. Um, thrifting clothing, which is great. Um, being able to assemble your own clothing. So if you can make your own clothes, that's, that's dope. That's super awesome. <laughs> or supporting other like artists who, uh, who make beautiful things. Do you think that ties into the, uh, you know, being a knitter, you know, that you're, um, you know, the patience that you have of producing something, it will take stitch by stitch that sort of links to keeping clothes, you know, having clothes that you will keep for such a long time. Absolutely. Like the idea that you, because uh, you could just buy anything that you could knit, you could also just buy it. Um, but to spend the time to be mindful enough to to make something that you will hold dear that like you actually put your, your work into like, that's a, it's a mindful act of, of, of making, I yeah. suppose. I love the phrase you use honor the cloth. I think I'm going to use that more. That's going to be my phrase to honor the cloth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, like the woman that I, I went to her lecture last night, India Flint, she wrote a whole book about this called second skin. 
Mm-hmm. And it's all about the slow clothing movement and uh, the idea of being a mindful human. Oh, I wanted to talk about going back to natural dyeing uh, because, you know, it's been our most recent issue. And of course, you were involved in it. Um, there's those with tutorials as well as yours. What yeah. advice would you? Yeah, let's mention that again. Yeah. <laughs> what advice um, would you give to someone who's uh, interested in natural dyeing or starting something like that? Oh, man. Uh, to be okay with experimenting. Okay. So in the world of natural dyeing, I think that um, there's kind of two really important things. One is to be uh, willing to try new things uh, and to be okay with the results if they, if they don't work. Um, and so with, with that, when I say that they don't work is that you're using something that's not light fast or wash fast. So something that will like the color will eventually fade. When I say that, I, I mean that you could do small samples for yourself at home. These aren't like for sale items. This would be something that, you know, you would, you would take note of what you dyed with. Did it stay? Did it not stay? That's kind of like a a fun part of the journey. Um, but then on the other side of it is, uh, Acknowledging the, the work that's been done by uh, those that came before us or those that are working alongside us. Um, for me, it's uh, whenever I, I teach natural dyeing, I, I will, you know, give as much information as I can. And then I'll say, you know, I'll give a list of like three or four books. And like, these are the people that have written like the most, I, I think the most important information that's come up in natural dyeing in the last however many years since last October, tell people to buy Christine's book from a verb for keeping one, yeah. the, the modern natural dyer. Fantastic. That I think yeah. is 100% my, like, that's the book that I tell people, like, if you're going to get started, this is the one, this is, I think the, the new Bible of natural dyeing. It's, it's very important. And her work on that, um, it's exceptional. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm still experimenting with things. Uh, a couple of years ago I was walking, around my neighborhood and I had, I always carry like a big giant basket instead of a purse. Cause then I can, you know, put like whatever I find yeah. into it. Um, you know, leaves and cats and whatever, yeah, uh, yeah. Not, not cats. I'm kidding. Um, but I was walking by this, this house and it had this beautiful tree and well, a bunch of them. And they had like these red flowers that in the, the middle, it looked like there was like a blueberry. So I kind of like liberated one of the blueberries and I smashed it against my, my basket and it, turn this like beautiful teal color. I was like, Oh, that's amazing. So I like really grounded in. And then I walked away and in my mind, I was like, okay, uh, if next year this color is still here. Um, so without using any sort of mordant, uh, the thing that gets the, the color to bite onto the, the fiber or fabric, if it will hold onto this plant-based basket, um, and still be here next year, then I can try doing a sample a little bit more with, with what's here. So then the next year the color was still there and like, which is amazing on my baskets. Like I beat the hell out of it and I like hose it out. Cause I always put like really weird, gross things in it. Um, and so the next year I went back and there were six trees, five or six. Um, and each tree had like 200 or sorry, 2000 of like these blossoms. So each tree I went to, I picked five of the tiny little berries at night. Cause I, I wasn't sure if it was on city property or somebody, right. it was kind of in a gray area. And it kind of adds um, the atmosphere of you foraging as well, you know. (laughs) Just in like the darkness of the basket. Yeah, yeah. Um, So really I only, I took probably like maybe a handful of berries total. So I probably took maybe like, you know, half a percent of what was there, if that. Um, And I brought it home and I cooked it up in a very small dye pot because I didn't have, you know, 
very much. Uh, and I took, I think it was like three grams of silk, uh, and then, uh, a dye sample swatch and I cooked them up in it. And it was this like vibrant teal sample swatch. It's a piece of cotton that has nine different mordants and modifiers, uh, on it so okay. that I could stick just it into a dye pot and I can yeah. see nine colors that come of it. So this color came out and I was like, oh my God, I invented a thing. I'm so smart. I did a thing. Uh, and so then I, I put a picture of, of the tree up on the internet onto Instagram I was like, does anybody know what this is? And everyone's like, oh my God, it's so pretty. I'm like, no, but like, what's like the Latin name for this tree? Anybody? And somebody was like, oh yeah, that's Harlequin Glory Bower. I was like, oh. So then I looked it up and I, it's a, it's a natural dye plant tree from Japan. Right. But because I live in the same sort of temperate climate as Japan, these trees live here. So I, I didn't invent a thing. I'm not cocky enough to think that I invented anything, which is good. Uh, but I discovered this this dye that just is around the corner from my house. Yeah. But I was playing the long game and that being, you know, over a year of waiting to see, because if I, on my initial day had just taken like a whole bunch and dyed like a whole big skinny yarn, that would be, uh, that would be impacting my, my land base in a really negative way. And that I, yeah, I just can't get down with that. So it's, I guess if you're going to start being a natural dyer, you should be a mindful human who reads a lot. <laughs> and uh, you're willing to take risks and to fail, which is good. Thank you so much. You've well, been absolutely fabulous to talk to. Uh, if people want to keep up to date with your book and all your adventures where you're digging in ditches and collecting all your cats and fruits and leaves of the world, uh, where should they go? <laughs> My website is uh, thesesecrets.com, T-H-E-S-E-S-E-C-R-E-T-S.com. Uh, there is a blog on there that I don't keep updated as, as often as I should. Uh, probably my best uh, way of seeing what I'm doing day to day is my Instagram, which uh, my name on Instagram is the word French, but with two Fs. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not Artie. It's actually my last name. It's Gaelic. I'm married into it. So uh, that's also my name on Ravelry um, is French with two Fs. Uh, and other than that, I guess if you're ever in Vancouver, stop by. <laughs> Great. Well, personally, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me and, and have a good, I guess, evening where you are. And yes, good morning, uh, good day. I'm here. Yeah. Thank you so much. talking to us so much we we, we discussed and it was a shame we had to cut it down to fit into the sections we have yep but, um, um, but yeah so thank you again Caitlin for talking to us all the way from Canada. Canada. Oh one of the cool things actually because we did do we did video Skype and it was an incredibly hot day so obviously I look very warm and sweaty and she looks <laughs> really cool because all her hands were still dyed with indigo that yeah. she'd been doing the other day yeah pretty rad pretty <laughs> rad <laughs> Time for our little segment. What would Juju do? Hi, Juju. Hi, Sophie. Welcome back. Thank you. So, starting off with a so a question from Cecilia Holt, who we now know as Sissy, because that's how she signed off. Yep. Good friends with her now. She says, "Hello, Juju, and all you pom pommers," which I think includes the people who are listening as well. Definitely. I'm sure it does. So, two questions, two bonus questions to test you, Juju. Okay. 
Number one, she's asking about an uh, interview we had with Amy. Uh, Amy gave a couple of top tips about colour choices, saying that she would advise someone with cool skin slash hair colours to wear something warmer next to their face and vice versa. Cooler colour to wear if your own colours are on the warm side. Interesting. Is this advice contrary to the widely spread season theory about finding your colours, or do they go together? I really wanted to hear Juju comment on that. I met lovely Juju as I visited Loop in February, and she had some great colour advice from her. Now, I was just curious. So Juju, colour theory and uh, theory of colours. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, first off, I want to say that um, I think the most important thing is that you wear colours that bring you joy. And I'm a little bit sceptical about you know, how important it is that a colour looks, you know, quote unquote, good on a person. Even people who tell me, oh, I could never wear this colour next, you know, next to my face and put it next to their face. I think, well, you know, it reflects a little bit on you, but it's not a disaster. Uh, not like some of Kim Kardashian's clothes. <laughs> oh my gosh, the colours she wears, but they're just bad colours on a body. They're not, it's not, anyway, that's another story, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the idea, though, about the colour theory and the, what, did you want to say something? We're keeping up with the cardigans. Yeah. <laughs> so great. Stay on trend, Juju, stay on brand. Keeping up with the cardians. <laughs> I love it. Can that be my segment from now on? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, color theory though, the generally speaking, the um, season color thing, which I think you're referring to is the color me beautiful theory from the mid eighties. Um, and I actually had my color me beautiful colors done in the eighties because I worked in a fabric shop and we all got a free consultation to help promote the business of color me beautiful. Now, I'm a spring, and springs are springs and autumns are meant to be warm colors with a yellow undercast to your skin tone, and uh, summers and winters are meant to be cool with a, a bluish, but really we're talking like a bluish pink uh, color cast to you know to your skin, and generally speaking, you're meant to wear warm colors if you're warm toned in skin, and cool colors if you're cool toned in skin. So that is contrary to what Amy has said. However, I can see uh, that it's sometimes nice to wear something that's a little bit more contrasty to your own complexion. I think sometimes, for instance, um, long hair, does everybody seems to have long hair these days, kind of blondes and light, light-colored hairs. If they wear too much beige, it can be a bit mm, too muddy. What do you think, Sophie? Uh, you can fall into the nude category, like yes. all-in-one New delusion. Well, we're coming back to Kim Kardashian again, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> Although she does have dark hair. So I would say try not to become just too much like your own hair color. Uh, and, you know, wear what you love. Yeah, that's my general color advice. So you think to hell with the rules, basically? Yeah, a little bit to hell with the rules. All right. So moving on to uh, question two. Um, this is more of a hands-on knitting question. So we've had the, uh, the theory... So, Cece asks, what would Juju do if she would discover after having knit a jumper or cardigan bottom-up that the bottom ribbing isn't really a success? It curls up after blocking, or it's just wrong? And there's two question marks there, so this was really like, <laughs> getting deep into the question. When it's too late to start over again, is there some special technique to open up the cast-on edge from the wrong side to unknit and re-knit? Um, this might have just happened to me. And in the context of this, she's knitting a Florence cardigan by Carrie Bostitch Hodge in the lovely Kettle Yarn Co. lace version. 
And she started by adding a couple of garters rows on the bottom to give it a little bit more stability. Um, the pattern starts with plain stockinette, just to give you an idea. Um, now she's afraid the border won't stay flat. So here we go. So a bit of ribbing, it's been bot bottom up. What would you do to sort of add to something that you've already cast on and finished? Well, uh, before I begin on what I would do to save this now, um, I would say that uh, when I'm following a pattern and I'm sure of, or I think I might want to alter the beginning, I actually do a temporary cast on over a Scooby-Doo, which is one of my favorite toys. Scooby-Doo's are those uh, plastic straw-like long things that kids made lanyards out of. It's like a plastic shoelace almost. Yeah, kind of. yeah. A tube. That's right. I have a lot of great uses for them, but they're perfect for temporary cast-ons, and it takes me no time to cast on a temporary cast-on over one. Uh, and then afterwards, I can decide what I want to do to the beginning and work it um, from the top down, so to speak. Um, I frequently do that for, for cast-ons rather than following the cast-on that's in the pattern. But if, if it's too late, as it seems to be in this case, then you can't actually unravel from the beginning. All you can do is snip it in a few places and you know, bring, pull your stitches back until you're all on the same row. If you've got um, some garter stitch there, then you're gonna wanna get beyond the garter stitch and put it all on a needle and then knit down and it's no problem at all. I'm not surprised you had a little problem with this because if you've added a garter stitch beginning to what was a stocking knit pattern, garter stitch is always wider than stocking knit so it will flip up. You would need to decrease some stitches um, in the garter stitch area in order for it to not do that. That's very interesting and comprehensive. <laughs> Thank you. You actually have the same problem with the sweater you're wearing right now. You just asked me about what to do about your ribbing and we decided that you were going to uh, wet block it and stretch it, didn't you? The key thing with this jumper that I've made is it's a mix of alpaca silk and I've held it double with a cotton. You said to wet block it and hang it. So I think the weight of the cotton and the stretch of the silk and the alpaca, it's, yeah, it's almost ideal. Yes, because of course it's a little bit wider than you need it to be, but not as long, and we'll just force the stitches to understand that they should be longer and slimmer. So I hope that answers your question, Cece, and I hope that gives everyone else some, uh, some top tips and an idea of what Juju would do. So thank you, of course, to knitting guru Juju Vale for spending time with Sophie Scott and answering many of your queries. We bow to her. We give her offerings of stitch markers. <laughs> we do. Um, broken and, needles. <laughs> and if you guys carry on uh, sending us your queries, then we can carry on taking them to um, the guru, Indeed. the knitting guru, uh, or crafting guru. I mean, she really is a, a woman of all the crafts. Indeed. Um, yeah, so thanks to her and thanks to you guys. Another thing we want you to, because we love it when you guys write in. and uh, Write to us more. We should write to us more. Uh, podcast at pompommag.com is the mm -hmm. email address. And what we are thinking, right? All right, okay, so Lydia, what's <laughs> yes. happening next month? Uh, Halloween. Right, okay, good, right answer. That's what I was thinking about. Love so Halloween, Halloween what are we thinking about? We're thinking about scary stories. Mm -hmm. Thinking about spooky happenings, mm -hmm. terrifying situations. All relating to craft. All relating to craft. So we want your terrifying like mishaps. We want things like frogging, disasters. Yeah. 
doesn't have to be paranormal activity with your knitting, but maybe it is. But hey, did a ghost steal your knitting needles? Did a poltergeist do your cast off? <laughs> <laughs> or some sort of like, yeah, yarn horror story where you're knitting in the car and you say goodbye to the people, they drive off and then you realise the knitting's in the car and you're holding onto the knitting and the ball of wool is winding its way down the stairs and the... You don't have stairs in a road, down the road! <laughs> But any, any kind of craft-related horror stories that you have, send them to us, and we will compile a spooky Halloween Ooh. special! Ooh. So yeah, that'd be really good. We think it's going to be cool. If you guys get are into it, we're into it. Yeah, so don't forget, uh, podcast at pompomag.com. All right, moving on to top three. Top three... I thought this was a really cool idea. And... Just for the record, I didn't think it wasn't a cool idea. But you went, hmm, that's difficult. And that was it. <laughs> it's because it's difficult. It's a tricky topic. It's difficult. We actually had Katie Green, uh, who does the illustrations, come visit for lunch recently. We did. And there was a smelly smell. And then I ended up thinking, not, not because she was visiting, but <laughs> outside there was something wrong with the drains outside the studio. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. It's going to be a lasting memory of visiting the studio. Oh, wait, top three smells. Let's do that. But nice smells. Yes. Well, most most top three are for nice things, yes? Yes. Uh, and I think smells are funny. <laughs> the thing is, I think the reason that I was a little, like, you're going to know, like, when I do my top three, it's going to be really boring and everyone's going to be like, oh, Lydia likes boring smells. What, what is a boring smell, though? Like, is this, are we so blind in society that we judge people by their favourite smells? People well, are the world. People are going to judge me by my favourite smells. I'm worried. All right, well, do you want me to go first? Yes. All right. <laughs> yes, I do. And I'll just copy yours. But then, like, I think it's something that you connect with people. You're like, oh, I really like the smell of this. They're like, oh, yeah, I love the smell of that. Whereas if they say that they like a smell of a thing, and you're like, mm, it's kind of gross. Well, you never, you know, never speak to them again. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have any friends who differ in their tastes and smells. Taste of music, that's fine. Politics, yeah, whatevs, don't care. Smells, it's got to be the same as mine. Sorry, guys. Okay, no Sophie's got boys. her uh, her post-it note ready. Okay, so what have you got at number three? Number three, lipstick. Okay. Really like the smell of lipstick. I think a particular it's, brand? or I couldn't think of the brand, but mm. it's deeply connected with my mum, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being a little girl, early 80s, her putting her lipstick on. I was, was allowed to smell the lipstick. For some reason, it had an incredible <laughs> smell. It's kind of, uh, sort of warm, powdery, powdery almost vanilla-y yep. but there's like a kind of buttery chemical smell mm-hmm. sometimes lipsticks don't smell good and I will not buy a lipstick now I am a woman who buys lipstick and wears it I won't buy it if it doesn't smell good that's very sensible I've got to say I also like the smell of lipstick but I haven't really ever uh, thought about it that much yeah I think uh, I smell. I think about it a lot it's a smell yeah. I associate with my mother so there we go that's cute okay we've got number two number two this is very specific as well uh with a memory tea and coffee aisle in supermarkets wow yeah i think your nose is stronger than my nose oh yeah i think your nose has lifted more weights than my nose has (laughs) (laughs) is this a disclaimer i do have a crazy sense of smell yeah because i think of myself as having quite a sensitive sense of smell but clearly i don't like i i I talk to my sister or i've talked to partners and been like you've done this or you've smelled you've eaten this or you've drank this and they'd be like how can you tell i'm like i can smell it Wow. I Uh-oh. once was able to sell, tell someone smoked a cigarette and it was four days ago since they had a cigarette. So I'm sweating out that smoke. Yeah. 
regular bloodhound over here. Um, wow, okay, so the tea and coffee and in any supermarket. Okay, any supermarket. I think it, it's from being a student and that's one of my kicks I could get, which was very cheap, <laughs> accessible, okay. um, part of my daily routine, going to the shop. Last one aisle I'd walk down before the checkout would be the tea and coffee aisle. Cause mm-hmm. like, mmm, the smells of tea and coffee. It does actually have a lovely tea leaf aroma. Yeah, that's true. You're totally right. I just never really thought about it. Because, yeah, tof- coffee smells good. Tea smells good. But if you walk into the central hub of where, you know, where it lives, mm. you've got the all the smells. Of tea and yeah. coffee. Wow. Yeah. All right. All right, number one. A- My eyebrows have, re- have raised really <laughs> high right now. They were so excited. I can't go for anything more less cliched than a rose. I mean, oh, that's so cute. By any other name, it would smell as sweet. Cool. Yeah. Any particular brand? <laughs> there, you, you, you joke, you jest, Lydia. But yes, but I shouldn't. There's a famous uh, breeder, I suppose you'd use that t- term. Uh, a guy called David Austin, who's famous, renowned within the world rose uh, growing world, for he is uh, a cultivator. And his roses are always beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the name of it, but there's a certain one that my dad has, which is, it just reminds me of summer. It reminds me of being home. It's uh, it's so honey, gloriousness, and it's smell. You bury your face in it because it is as big as, you know, it's as big as your palm of your hand. Mm. Wow. And that for me is the, is the epitome of happiness. Of delicious smells. And smells. Oh, that's so cute. Okay, my smells are, seem uh, quite masculine now to me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if if your smells were mixed together into a perfume, yours would be the girl perfume. That would be delicious. This is very sort smell. of like, you know, old fashioned notions of, of masculine and feminine sure. and so on and so forth. But it, if we were going with those, mm-hmm. then yours would definitely be the girly one. <laughs> okay, at number three, I have coffee. Coffee's a great smell. It's a pretty standard. This is what I'm talking about. I mean, it is a great smell, but I just feel really boring when I was thinking about my favourite. Anyway, I love the smell of coffee because in the morning, is there anything better? M- many people would say maybe the smell of frying bacon, but since I don't eat bacon, I don't find that to be very exciting. But coffee, I do drink coffee. Mm. And I've always really loved coffee. It's good. Um, Rich. Inviting. Yeah. And you just know that it's going to make you feel real good. Yes. Give me that caffeine. <laughs> um, so that's not doesn't really need a lot of explanation because well, most people are like yeah, nice. Even Amy, who works with us, who doesn't like coffee, she enjoys the smell. She does enjoy the smell. She's sensible. Yeah. Um, okay. And at number two, it's a kind of complicated smell to describe, but it's actually kind of a normal one that everyone likes. So it's the smell of leather, but specifically because I used to go horse riding when mm-hmm. I was younger. And I like the smell of horses, but I particularly like the smell of leather and horses together. Yes. And you, yeah, I guess, like, maybe, yeah, or just horse smell. It's a good horse smell. smell. It's kind of, it's, horse smell is interesting because it's a little bit like hay. Yep. But it's a little bit more... Like horse. Rusty, almost, yeah. you know? Yep. And, but also, yeah, the smell of the leather. And leather always reminds me of horse riding, like the smell of it, because I guess it's probably the most involved with leather I've ever been, because you do a lot of like cleaning of the tack. And that involves, you know, like cleaning a lot of kind of large pieces of leather. Yeah. And I'm not really the kind of person who's very good at taking care of leather shoes and things like that. So really the smell of uh, cleaning and good. cleaning leather always reminds me of horse riding. Nice, nice. Okay. Oh, I love I'm, very, I'm interested to see what number three one is. Number one is the smell of the sea and sea salt. Oh, lovely. And specifically the smell of, like, I like 
everything about the sea, more or less, except for the fact that it's dangerous, obviously. But that ad- ad- adds like an air of uh, peril and respect that you should have oh, for yeah. nature, which I quite like. But again, I grew up by the seaside and I miss the sea all the time. And I do miss the smell of it specifically. I miss being, especially in the winter when it would be, if it was stormy, you could walk along the, um, like, uh, the, I don't know, like the boardwalk bit mm. near where I used to work in this funny ice cream parlour. I'd walk home uh, along the sea and it would just, like, if the wind was blowing really hard, you'd get loads of sea spray and the smell of the ocean. There's that horrible seaweed, bad sea smell. Not that. Oh, the funky one, no. <laughs> yeah, not. not that, the nice one. And the smell of it on your skin, I guess, as well. Yeah. And I like it when the salt gets caught in your eyebrows and your hair and stuff and that smells good. Top three things about the sea. <laughs> I know, sorry, I went a little off topic. But can you see why I thought mine was like the I can see. Fish? <laughs> I can see. No. I think that's all the things I, you said I like as well. Oh, do you want to hang out? Yeah. Yay. Do you want to make a podcast about knitting and, and crafts yeah. and a magazine that we both work in? Maybe people would read and listen to it. I hope so. And we hope they enjoy it. Hey. Hey. hey segue back to you guys. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying some nice smells. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps coffee. Perhaps coffee. Perhaps uh, lipstick. Well, the smell of yarn. Neither of us said the smell of yarn. Shh. Crikey. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket. Oh, but okay. that's terrible. I mean, that's an unspoken that we love the smell of yarn. Yes. It's number four. Number four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> number 2.5. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, until this uh, podcast it has smell of vision or sm- smell <laughs> audio or. <laughs> or similar. Or similar, uh, we'll just keep doing our fun ramblings and hope you enjoy them. Indeed. Um, Reminders that you can get in touch with us via podcast at pompommag.com. You can comment on the podcast blog post and you can hang out with us on the Ravelry forum. There's a pom-pom group there. Yep. Don't forget that there's a whole magazine connected to this podcast as well. What, what? So check out uh, pompommag.com for all the fun things there. And on that note, we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. Podcast is produced by Lydia Block and Sophie Scott, with lots of help from Eli Block, who created the original music for this show, and also got engaged recently! Woo! Congratulations, Eli, and the lovely Tilly. For more Eli-related music, you can go to goodgirlandthebadtimes.com. Thanks, as always, to Megan Fernandez, Earth Mother and Yarn Goddess, who is a co-creator and editor of Pom Pom Quarterly, and to Amy, who's like our crochet hook that skillfully rescues any of our dropped stitches, and to our ray of sunshine, Gail. Thanks to our interviewee, Caitlin French. And of course, a big thank you to all you Pom Pom buyers, subscribers and listeners. Hooray! Hooray! If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and why not leave a review? Send any feedback or ideas to podcast at pompommag.com and don't forget to keep in touch with us via the podcast group on the Pom Pom Ravelry Forum. See you there! Bye!